1: It's New Year's Eve 1981, and in Sydney, Woolworths executives and the New South Wales Police Task Force investigating the $1 million extortion bid against the company are waiting for the bomber, Mr. Dunmore, to make contact again. In the 24 hours since he called and elaborated on his demands, Woolworths point man, John Hendry, has been busy arranging the ransom. He's contacted the Bank of New South Wales to arrange for half a million dollars in used $20 notes to be transferred to a vault. Mr Dunmore's instructions also named men working at the Australian Bullion Company and Proud's jewellery store as the people from whom Woolworths must respectively buy a quarter of a million dollars worth of gold and diamonds. John Henry has called these companies and established that the named men indeed are employees. Police believe Mr Dunmore might have insiders at the bullion company and at Proud's who will report back to him if no action is taken. So John Hendry has ordered the purchase of the gold and the diamonds. The gold's available and is transferred to the Bank of New South Wales vault. But the diamonds? Proud's only has $78,000 worth on hand because the market's been closed over Christmas. With a four-day New Year's break about to start, there's no way to buy that quantity of one carat diamonds by the close of business. This, the police say, is a good thing, as a legitimate delaying tactic. So behind the scenes, Woolworths and the task force are busy readying the ransom, even though the official line is that the company's not paying. The Australian public doesn't know any of this. That's because, in the wake of the leak that saw the $1 million ransom demand and the Mr. Dunmore codename splashed across newspaper front pages and TV screens, the New South Wales Police Commissioner Jim Lees has severely restricted press access to detectives working the case. As far as the public know, the bomber hasn't made any further contact. With this veil of secrecy in place, at ten past four this afternoon, the 31st of December 1980, Mr Dunmore phones Woolworths head office and identifies himself with the new Mr Holden codename known only to him, a handful of Woolworths directors, and an inner circle of the police task force. Mr Dunmore wants to speak to Woolworths chairman, Eric McClintock and his calls put through again to John Hendry, assuming this role. As John picks up, he presses the record button on the tape machine that police and telecom have hooked up to his phone. Mr. Dunmore wants to know if Woolworths has the gold and the diamonds yet. John Hendry tells him they have the bullion, but not the gemstones. If Mr. Dunmore has an insider at Proud's, he knows this is the truth. Either way, with just an hour left before the close of business for 1980, the extortionist has little choice but to give Woolworths more time. Mr Dunmore says he'll call back in the new year. Woolworths not being able to buy the diamonds has bought the police time. Time to follow leads and to formulate plans. Perhaps most important is that Mr Dunmore making this concession has subtly started a shift of power away from him and in favour of Woolworths and the police. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part three of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. After the New Year's holiday weekend, Sydney got back to business on Monday, the 5th of January, 1981. And so did Mr Dunmore. That day, he called the Mick Simmons sports store at Haymarket and asked if they had a bright green Kookaburra brand cricket bag in stock. Told they had one left, he said he'd buy it. The bag should be set aside for a Mr. McClintock, who'd be in to pay cash for it tomorrow. At 4.35 that Monday afternoon, Mr. Dunmore called Woolworths and asked for Eric McClintock. He was patched through to John Hendry, posing again as the company chairman. Mr. Dunmore told him to send a Woolworths employee to pick up the bag at Mick Simmons tomorrow. A plainclothes policeman would be dispatched to do this. While John Hendry was taping these calls, Telecom hadn't been able to trace them coming into the Woolworths head office due to the antiquity of exchange equipment still being used in that part of Sydney. Police theorised that the bomber had worked out he was safe from this sort of threat. They assumed he'd made his calls from a phone booth and, after hanging up, watched to see if police swarmed the location. When they didn't, he grew in confidence and his calls lasted longer. This worked to the police's advantage. Everything he said gave them a better idea of what sort of man he was. With every word recorded, every word could be used in evidence. On Tuesday the 6th of January, around 12.30pm, Mr Dunmore was on the line again. John Hendry told him that the Diamonds weren't going to be available from Prouds for another week. Mr Dunmore counted that the company should buy them on the open market if necessary. What John didn't tell him was that Woolworths had that very day bought the Diamonds from Prouds. Very likely, Mr. Dunmore didn't have an insider at the jewellery store, or he would have known this. Mr. Dunmore called the next day at around quarter to four in the afternoon. John Hendry told him they'd have the diamonds tomorrow. Mr. Dunmore advised that when the ransom handover happened, he'd be sending a courier codenamed Mr. Bridge. He warned that police capturing this man would not only be futile, but dangerous for Woolworths. Quote, He's going to be of no advantage to you because he doesn't know our identity. So, you know, we would have to start bombing immediately if they were to do that. John Hendry replied, When you say start bombing again, that's not going to... You're not going to go through that daylight procedure again, are you? Mr. Dunmore told him, quote, Well, whatever we have to do, you know, it's... Um, it's up to you just to keep the police out of this. If Mr Dunmore had been paying attention to previous extortion attempts in Sydney over the past decade, he had to know that the police were definitely going to be involved and that these conversations were all being recorded. John Henry was delivering a copy of every call tape to the CIB. These recordings were to be analysed by Sydney University phonetics expert Alex Jones, who testified in that case against bomber extortionist Raymond Gilmore we heard about in Part 2. What would be most obvious to Alex Jones immediately was that Mr Dunmore's Italian-sounding accent was a fake. He was a native English speaker who was turning it on. But the accent he was using, along with the diction and word choice, wasn't consistent. Coincidentally, then in Australia, exaggerated Italian accents were being used by a lot of people as they sang along to Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face, which had recently become Australia's biggest selling single and was still at number one after eight weeks in that top spot. Mr. Dunmore's Italian accent might have been fake, but he wasn't the only one playing the faking game. Operation Alpha, The name for the police plan to catch him was to depend on deception. A deception they'd only be able to sell to Mr. Dunmore by gradually pushing back against his authority. With John Hendry's help, the task force had turned Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer into a Woolworth security officer. In case Mr. Dunmore had somebody inside the company, Frank Kamer's name was put onto staff lists and he was issued with a Woolworths identification card complete with photo. When it came time for the handover, Frank Kamer would be the man to carry the ransom, not the Woolworths employee Greg Newling that Mr. Dunmore had specified in his original demand letter. Police had also obtained an identical kookaburra cricket bag and filled it with fake cash, gold and diamonds. This dummy ransom was convincing enough to pass inspection should Mr Bridge look inside at the handover. But Woolworths made the call that they were going to use the real ransom. They reasoned if Mr. Bridge should elude police and make his way back to Mr. Dunmore with a dummy ransom, the company could expect a wave of retaliatory bombings that had cost far more than $1 million in damage, lost business, and maybe lost lives. At least if Mr. Bridge got away and Mr. Dunmore got his $1 million, he might be satisfied and end his campaign of terror. There was a catch-22 to this sort of thinking, though. Woolworths paying the ransom would almost certainly become public, and this would likely inspire new extortionists. On the 8th of January 1981, task force members went to the Bank of New South Wales and started noting the serial numbers of the used $20 notes that would comprise the $500,000 cash component of the ransom. Back in 1971, the Mr. Brown ransom money had been similarly recorded, but those had been new sequential bills, so the police task was far easier. Mr. Dunmore had specified, use $20 notes, and that meant officers had to record 25,000 unique serial numbers. But it had to be done. This type of evidence had helped put Mr. Brown away, and it might do the same for Mr. Dunmore. While the police were busy with that, Mr. Dunmore called Woolworths to confirm the ransom was ready. Over the past two weeks, Woolworths and the police had used the media to put pressure on the bomber and these ransom calls to shift control in their favour. Now John Hendry faced another critical moment. He told Mr. Dunmore that Woolworths' employee, Greg Newling, wasn't available to deliver the ransom. He asked if he could use one of their security men instead. Mr. Dunmore didn't say yes or no, but said they'd discuss it further the following morning. One of the big questions police had wanted to answer since the Woolworths bombings began was whether the extortionist was working alone or with co-conspirators. The demand letter had used the royal we, and in conversation, Mr. Dunmore had referred to us, Of course, this could have just been a ploy by a lone operator to make himself seem more menacing. But just now on the phone, Mr Dunmore had been unable to commit to Woolworths using a security man instead of Greg Newling. And this was the strongest indicator yet that he wasn't working by himself. Clearly, he had to consult with a co-conspirator overnight before giving his answer to Woolworths. With Mr Dunmore still on the line, John Hendry further increased the pressure by putting another condition on the ransom handover. If the exchange was going to be made tomorrow, Friday the 9th of January, it would have to be done by 3pm. After that, John said, the cash, gold and diamonds would need to be returned to the bank vault for safekeeping over the weekend. While securing the $1 million was a real concern, this was a police ploy to keep the extortionist on their timetable. What they didn't want was the handover stretching into a wild goose chase through Friday night and possibly even over the entire weekend. Mr. Dunmore called back at 10.40 on Friday morning. He wanted to know why Woolworths employee Greg Newling wasn't available to be the courier. John Hendry told him the man was on annual holidays. And this was true. After the ransom letter had been received, police had told Woolworths to instruct Greg Newling to take leave so that he would be genuinely unavailable, allowing their man to fill the spot as a courier. If the extortionist had insiders in the company, this would look like normal Christmas and New Year holidays. Mr. Dunmore was either satisfied by this explanation, or was simply eager to keep things moving now that the handover was so close. He agreed that Woolworths could use one of their security men as the courier. Mr. Dunmore asked the name of this man. John Hendry replied that that would depend on who was scheduled to be working when the handover happened. It was an unlikely answer, but Mr. Dunmore didn't question it. Now it was John Hendry who raised a concern. He pointed out that the Kookaburra bag couldn't be easily secured. Unlike a hard-shell suitcase with a lock, this cricket carry-all was fabric and closed with a zipper. What John was saying was that if Mr. Bridge was so inclined, he could easily dip into the bag to grab cash, gold, or especially the diamonds which fit into the palm of your hand. Mr. Dunmore, though, he wasn't concerned by this. To police listening, this was a clear indication that Mr. Bridge wasn't some courier for hire who didn't know Mr. Dunmore. Instead, he was a, or even the, trusted co-conspirator. Now on the phone, Mr. Dunmore wanted John Hendry to reconfirm with the bank that 3pm was the latest the exchange could be done that day. He said he'd call back. When he did, John Hendry said, yes, it had to be by 3 o'clock. Mr. Dunmore said, All right. Woolworth should bring the ransom to the town hall head office by 1pm and await further instructions. Task Force member Detective Senior Constable Jeff Nation had been given charge of the ransom. He and two men from the armed hold up squad had dressed as Transurity security guards and had use of one of the company's vans in order to move the ransom from the bank. This was to maintain the ruse that police weren't involved. Posing as armed security guards and being monitored by yet more undercover detectives was a defence against the possibility that the bombers planned to carry out an armed robbery while the $1 million ransom was in transit. Moving the cash gold and diamonds wasn't physically as easy as just slinging the kookaburra bag over a shoulder. In the movies, such ransoms often appear close to weightless, In reality, while the diamonds weighed mere grams, the gold totaled 14 kilograms. Those 25,000 used $20 notes, they tipped the scales at 40 kilos. All up the ransom weighed a hefty 55 kilograms. It'd be manageable by one man, just though he'd struggle and he wouldn't be able to go very far, very fast. So how was Mr. Bridge going to escape with it? He certainly wasn't going to be doing it on foot. The transfer went without incident and the ransom was taken to an office in the Woolworths building where Detective Senior Constable Jeff Nation kept it under guard. Police had predicted that Mr Dunmore would try to push back against the 3pm deadline. After all, it was in his interest to have the ransom out in the wild for the weekend so he could take his time. The police and john Hendry waited for him to call back and they waited when 3 pm came and went the police and john decided they were going to stand firm the ransom was about to be returned to the bank vault when the phone rang at around a quarter past three mr dunmore said he wanted to go ahead with the handover john told him the ransom was already being returned to the bank this wasn't true The $1 million in cash, gold and diamonds was still right there in the office. Mr. Dunmore demanded that the order be reversed and the ransom be returned to the Woolworths building. John told him it was too late, it wasn't possible, and that Mr. Dunmore had been warned that 3pm was the deadline. Faced with no choice, Mr. Dunmore agreed the exchange would now take place on Monday. Turning up the pressure, John Hendry said it'd need to be done by the close of business because he, remember he was posing as Chairman Eric McClintock, would be travelling that night and be unavailable the following day. Mr Dunmore agreed to this. John reminded him that Woolworths had held up its end of the bargain today and he sought assurance there'd be no bombings in reprisal over the weekend. Again, Woolworths and the police were setting the parameters. Mr. Dunmore's ignorance about the ransom still being in the office also indicated a couple of things. He didn't have an insider highly placed in the Woolworths headquarters and he and his co-conspirator or co-conspirators hadn't been surveilling the building to see if the Transurity security guards were taking the $1 million back to the bank. Mr. Dunmore wasn't all-seeing and all-knowing. Even so, it would be a nerve-wracking weekend for John Hendry
0: Or go to Amazon.com slash True Crime Ad Free. That's Amazon.com slash True Crime Ad Free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: On the morning of Monday the 12th of January, John Hendry was in his office awaiting Mr. Dunmore's phone call. It came at exactly 10 a.m. A clock was heard striking in the background. While Woolworths and the police had tried to gain a measure of control, now the extortionist wanted it known that he was in charge and that failure to comply with his instructions would result in disaster. Mr Dunmore ordered that the ransom be ready by 2pm. He said that the Woolworths courier was to be codenamed Mr Johnson. He was to wear a blue boiler suit, white shirt and red tie. Mr. Dunmore warned that four remote control bombs had already been placed in four different Woolworths outlets. He threatened, quote, should our courier be apprehended, don't open your stores because at 12 tomorrow, the bombs will go off. Mr. Dunmore said he'd call back later. The prescribed outfit was obtained for Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer. Wearing this blue boiler suit white shirt and red tie, looking for all the world like a tradesman come businessman Frank Kamer would stand out wherever he was. He'd also sweated out because the day was hot and humid with frequent heavy rain. The ransom was again brought to the Woolworths head office by Detective Senior Constable Jeff Nation and the two men from the armed robbery squad. Across town, at 12 noon, the task force held a final Operation Alpha briefing in their Surrey Hills headquarters. Surveillance teams were divided into Alpha and Bravo. Alpha was made up of 18 men from the observation squad. It was their job to make sure that boiler-suited courier Frank Kamer was safe and to keep their eyes on the ransom. Bravo comprised seven men from the CIB. Their job was to follow the courier... Mr Bridge. If Mr Bridge was to leave the ransom somewhere, Alpha would keep watch on the bag while Bravo continued to tail him. No one was to arrest Mr Bridge until the masterminds were identified. Other detectives across Sydney were also briefed, including members of the Water Police, the Air Wing, Ballistics Units and Dog Squad. The plan was that no matter where Frank Kamer was sent, he'd always be inside an inner perimeter created by the observation squad. Their members would follow in unmarked cars and go ahead to stake out whatever locations Mr. Dunmore intended on using. Shadowing vehicles would swap out every kilometre in case Frank Kamer was being followed by the extortionists or in case they were watching the routes. Inside the inner perimeter, there were to be no marked police cars or uniformed officers. A larger contingent of patrol vehicles, other detectives and uniformed policemen and policewomen were to form an outside perimeter as insurance that the bad guys didn't get away. If they somehow managed to escape this operation and thought they'd fly out of the country, police had arranged with Qantas and other airlines for seats to be kept vacant for detectives and for overseas flights to be able to be credibly delayed. Air traffic at Mascot could also be diverted if necessary. Light aircraft were on standby at Bangstown Airport and the Army Bomb Disposal Units were also on call. This was one of the largest police operations in New South Wales history. It was also meant to be one of the most secretive, with radio use kept to an absolute minimum to avoid eavesdropping by the bombers and the media. At 2 o'clock that afternoon, John Hendry took another call from Mr. Dunmore. He instructed that the courier, Mr. Johnson, was to have a Gregory Street Directory and a car with a full tank of petrol. Mr. Johnson was to be in the office at 2.15 when he'd receive further instructions, this time from Mr. Bridge. For the police, the vehicle was no problem. They had a yellow Volvo owned by Woolworths at their disposal. But the demand for a Gregory Street directory, that was a little out of left field. This was because Sydney police used the UBD brand directories. Getting one Gregory's for Frank Kamer was easy enough, but the task force had to hurry to buy many more so all of its members could be on the same page as the extortionists. At 2.15, John Hendry got another call as promised. A different voice. This was Mr. Bridge told him that Mr. Johnson was to stand outside the Woolworths building. Mr. Bridge hung up and Frank Kamer took the lift downstairs and stood on the footpath on George Street. Somewhere, the bomber or bombers were getting a good look at him in his boiler suit. When no one had approached Frank Kamer after 20 minutes, he went back upstairs. Mr. Bridge called again at about five minutes to three. He instructed John Hendry that Mr. Johnson was to take the ransom to the Highway Hotel on the Great Western Highway at Wentworthville. Helpfully, he provided the Gregory's map reference. Mr. Johnson was to get there by 4pm and to go into the lounge bar. Mr. Bridge hung up. While the Highway Hotel was 25km west and Frank Kamer only had an hour to get there in wet weather, he wasn't in a hurry. and Detective Senior Constable Jeff Nation in his security guard disguise took their time taking the lift downstairs to load the $1 million ransom into the Volvo. It was 3.30 by the time Frank Kamer left the city, this delay giving Observation Squad members a head start to get to the Highway Hotel. Traffic was sluggish as Frank drove west, Shadowed by his plainclothes colleagues in unmarked cars, though the low cloud ceiling meant that the police helicopter couldn't be used. The Highway Hotel was a well-known pub and rock venue where bands like Rose Tattoo and the Radiators would regularly raise the roof. But all was quiet when Frank Kamer finally got there at 4:30 that Monday afternoon. Observation squad members were already inside and outside. Frank hauled the heavy ransom bag into the bar and ordered a beer. He hadn't been there long when the licensee said there was a call for a man in a blue boiler suit. Frank went into the office, picked up the phone and said, Johnson here. Is that you, Mr. Bridge? Mr. Bridge told him to get to the Rose Bay Hotel on New South Head Road by 5.45 and wait in the lounge. Frank said traffic was heavy and he might be late. Mr. Bridge said, get there as quickly as you can. Before he'd left the Woolworths head office, Frank Kamer had heard the tapes of the Mr Bridge phone calls. Same voice as the bloke he'd just spoken with. Before Frank got to the Rose Bay Hotel, an Observation Squad member was already in place and posing as a drinker in the public bar. This plainclothesman had noticed another customer acting a little oddly. He was a young fella, mid to late 20s with brown curly hair and a full beard. This bloke had a green airline carry-all bag at his feet, and he seemed a bit agitated. Several times, he took the bag to the front door, poked his head out, and looked up and down New South Head Road. At 5.35pm, this guy left. The bag slung over his shoulder. By the way it sagged at the centre, the undercover detective thought it contained something heavy. As this man exited the pub, he was spotted by another Observation Squad plainclothes man. Because the bearded bloke had several times already appeared in the doorway of the hotel, the detective shadowed him for five minutes until he went into the post office. After that, the undercover policeman gave him no more thought because the action was likely to be back at the Rose Bay Hotel. Arriving there with his heavy ransom bag, Frank Kamer went into the lounge. No one approached, so he took himself and the bag into the public bar and ordered a beer. Soon after, a phone call came into the hotel's bottle shop, the caller asking to speak to a customer wearing a blue boiler suit. When Frank came on the line, Mr. Bridge now told him to go to the Buena Vista Hotel at Mossman and provided him with the Gregory Street Directory map reference, page 60 A14. When Frank got there, he was to go into the public bar and stand beneath the TV set. Frank and his bag went back into the Volvo. He crossed the Sydney Harbour Bridge as the undercover police car convoy preceded him so they could fan out around this latest rendezvous point. At the Buena Vista Hotel, Frank was summoned to take another phone call. Mr. Bridge told him, quote, I now want you to go down Bradley's Head Road to Taronga Park Gate. Map reference 1686. Go to the car park near the pedestrian crossing and you will see drainage holes in the wall. You will find a parcel wrapped in a newspaper in one of the holes. Press the button and you will receive further instructions. Hearing this had to give Frank Kame a pause because pressing a button on a device left by a ruthless bomber? Well, that didn't bear thinking about too much. When Frank got to the destination and found the parcel... Wrapped in the front page of that day's The Sun newspaper, it turned out to be a CB radio. Pressing the button, the voice on the other end wasn't Mr. Bridge. Frank told him he didn't have good reception and he'd have to drive the Volvo to the upper part of the Taronga Wharf car park. This delaying tactic allowed undercover detectives to move into position. Now Frank said he was receiving loud and clear. The voice told him, Johnson, go down to the new wharves and when you get there, you will receive further instructions. Frank did as he was told. The CB radio crackled to life again, the voice telling him to take the ransom bag to the end of the westernmost wharf. Frank used the weight of the bag as an excuse to move slowly, giving his colleagues more time to get into place as the voice on the radio urged him to hurry up. At the end of the wharf, The voice now told Frank, you will see a yellow nylon rope tied to the pylon. Frank saw it, extending down into the water, clearly attached to something heavy. The voice said to haul up 12 feet of the yellow rope. Frank was to attach the ransom bag and the radio to the rope and then lower them into the water. Frank Kamer did as he was instructed. $1 $1 million in cash, gold and diamonds in a green cricket bag sank into the harbour's murky waters and vanished. Frank Kamer's part done, he left the wharf and returned to the CIB. The site was under surveillance from all sides by his colleagues, and in total some 100 officers would be involved in Operation Alpha. After Frank Kamer had retreated and the sun had set, an observation squad detective named Hamilton and Senior Constable Frank Buffoni ambled onto the wharf and pretended to be fishermen. Frank Buffoni surreptitiously attached a fishing line to the yellow rope. Soon after that, he left Detective Hamilton to go on posing as an angler. It wasn't a lonely vigil. Behind Detective Hamilton, along the shores, detectives hid in bushes while others posed as homeless men. Yet more detectives and policewomen pretended to be lovers in panel vans in the car park. Out across the harbour, detectives hid on fishing boats and watched the wharf from water police launches. And beneath the surface of the harbour, just after Frank Kamer had dropped the bag, two police scuba divers swam through the darkness to the wharf. There, they ascended carefully. Ten feet above the bottom of the harbour, attached to the end of the yellow rope, was a green airline's carry-all bag filled with heavy rocks. Further up the rope, 10 feet beneath the surface, was the Kookaburra ransom bag and the radio. The ransom hadn't been intercepted as soon as it hit the water. Having made their observation that the bait was still in place, the police divers swam away to Clifton Gardens. There, they were picked up by a water police launch, which then resumed its watch off Bradley's head. Curiously, given that the Daily Mirror had published the police leak about Mr Dunmore's extortion note and his codename, a team of reporters and photographers from this newspaper had the inside track on Operation Alpha, which they watched for 12 hours from what they'd only described later as a, quote, safe distance. Despite orders to the contrary, the police radio band was busy that night with messages back and forth indicating that something big was happening off Taronga Park. Constable Alan Duncan, by now back on duty and that night in a patrol car, heard so much radio chatter about an operation in progress at Mossman that he and his partner agreed it probably had something to do with the Woolworths bombings. He wasn't the only one listening in. About an hour after Frank Kamer lowered the ransom bag into the harbour, television news crews tried to drive down Bradley's Head Road to find out what was happening. They were stopped by police and told to turn back. Next, a newspaper team tried to get access to the wharf and they were also told to get lost. That the media was sniffing around the story didn't bode well. If Sydney's reporters were wise, there was every chance the bombers were also... Police feared that after nearly three weeks of tense negotiations and planning, they'd blown it. If they had, then it might very well mean that more Woolworths would be blown up. At two in the morning, 16 hours after the first Mr Dunmore call the previous morning, everything was quiet and still on the wharf and foreshores, still posing as fishermen Senior Constable Frank Buffoni and Detective Fitzpatrick returned to the wharf to relieve their colleague, Detective Hamilton. The duo settled in, just a couple of blokes hoping to catch a feed. Detective Fitzpatrick was holding the line when, at 2.27am, he had a bite. Someone or something was tugging the fishing line attached to the yellow rope senior constable frank buffoni went to the wharf edge and peered down at the water against the darkly shimmering surface he saw a man a man in a full scuba suit with twin air tanks on his back this guy was trying to cut the rope the frogman looked up and locked eyes with the undercover officer keeping cool frank buffoni said gee mate you gave me a fright i'm just here doing some fishing The man in the scuba suit didn't respond. Frank Buffoni, as casually as he could, retreated from the wharf edge, hurried to alert Detective Fitzpatrick and used his radio to raise the alarm. Then he rushed back to the edge of the wharf. Frank Buffoni's surprised fisherman routine had worked. The scuba diver was still there. If he'd dived and swum away, things would have likely been very different. Frank pulled his service revolver and aimed it at the frogman, saying, I'm from the police. Don't move or I will shoot. Keep your hands above the water and hold onto the pylon. The diver did what he was told. Frank Buffoni had Mr. Bridge dead to rights. But police had also been dead certain Mr. Bridge wasn't working alone. Catching him before he led them back to Mr. Dunmore? That wasn't how Operation Alpha had been supposed to go down. When the ransom went into Sydney Harbour, police had seen their options dwindle. A dead-of-night scuba diver could have gotten away with the loot as surely as D.B. Cooper had parachuted from that plane to become a criminal legend. Losing Mr. Bridge, the ransom, and failing to catch Mr. Dunmore was an embarrassment the New South Wales police would never live down. But this massive undercover operation with its $1 million bait They'd very possibly hooked the sardine and left the shark still out there. Mr Dunmore, who'd already promised that if Mr Bridge was intercepted, he'd detonate bombs in four Woolworths stores today at noon. That was in less than 10 hours. Woolworths had 256 stores in New South Wales alone. The clock was ticking. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the third part of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The next instalment is going to be released very shortly, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it comes out. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, I'd really appreciate it if you could give the show a rating or review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I love reading your comments, and your feedback also actually helps the show reach new listeners. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.